The Bible is a story of two cities. On one hand, the city of man, the worldwide community driven by the love of self and the glory of their own name, even to the contempt of God, as Augustine put it. On the other hand, we have the city of God, the people fueled by the love of God and the quest to glorify His name in all the earth, even to the contempt of self. These two cities, these two people distinguished by these various ways and their various loves are also distinguished by the way that they understand blessing. What is a blessed life? What does it mean that you are blessed? As we think of it biblically, particularly, what does that word mean? A blessed life is a vibrant life. It is a beautiful life, a productive life. It's life abounding. The opening chapters of the Bible reveal that man's city defines blessing a certain way. They define blessing as power. They define blessing as control, as technological triumph, as sensual pleasure, as man-made religion and societal progress to the glory of man in defiance of God if need be. This we have seen in the pages of the book of Genesis as man lifts his voice and lifts his capacities to defy God and to magnify his own name. That's the blessed life. That's life abounding. We are in control. So in the prosperous city of Cain, what did we see? Genesis 4. We see this city speaking against God, assembling against God. In the arrogant immorality of Lamech, we see it. In the sensual titans of Genesis chapter 6, we see this spirit. And then again in the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, we witness man's city obsessed with making a name for itself. Remember last week, we come to Genesis 11 and verse 4. At this scene on the plain of Shinar, at the in the building of the Tower of Babel, verse 4, what was the whole point? They built, they wanted to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's the idea, to make a name for ourselves. This tower of bricks rising from the, from the earth channels this God-defying spirit. This agenda of Cain, it's fueled by the collaborative powers of the city, by people brought into close proximity, but this is the whole point, that we together would collaborate against God and make a name for ourselves. And so the city walls go up and the tower rises. We will not follow God's command. We will stay here and we will be in charge. We will make a name for ourselves. Now remember, the ancient texts were very limited in space, and so they used repetition and word plays to emphasize vital points. Now we have that going on here and need to catch back up with it here today as we carry forward. Genesis 11.4, we want to make a name for ourselves. What does that remind you of? That links back to chapter 6 and verse 4. Now it fails us a little bit in the English because it says there, I believe the people of God, the sons of God, finding in the daughters of men women that were attractive to them, drawing them to themselves, possibly in multiple marriages, but for a name. 
And they're called there in the English the men of renown, which literally in the Hebrew is the men of a name. And we can't miss this connection. These men of a name, even the sons of God being brought into this sense of power and authority and might. These men with a name. Then we come to the Tower of Babel and we have here again the name And that really even links back to Genesis 4 and verse 17. Remember that Cain names the city that he builds after his son. He doesn't name it after God in dependence, and he doesn't name it after Abel in repentance. He names it after himself, his own progeny. So this theme of name continues to build throughout the text. It is no accident then as we come to chapter 11 of Genesis and verse 10 that we encounter another genealogy and that it is headed by a man named Shem. Shem in the Hebrew is a Hebrew word for name. His name is name in a sense. God's agenda in contrast to what we've seen, does not hinge on a tower or in the blather of an arrogant power broker making a name for himself. God's agenda is fixed on a name that He supplies. And it ties back very clearly to Genesis 3 and verse 15. There will be one who is born of the woman and the seed of the woman who crushes the head of Satan. While the city of Babel sought to make a name for itself, then God gives a name, Shem, whose offspring will produce the man who crushes Satan's head. Does this make sense? We need a name. We will make a name. It is playing out throughout. And we come to the Tower of Babel as kind of the last statement of this agenda. And God says, let me give you a name. I will supply it. It's the name, name, Shem. So Babel's rebellion, ringing in our ears, Genesis now 11.10 reveals a name, the lineage of Shem, through whom God has sovereignly chosen to bless His people, the Semitic peoples. This includes, of course, a Jewish people. And through that name, through Shem, from Abraham, or I'm sorry, from Adam to Abel, lots of A's here, get the A's in right order, from Adam to Abel, to Seth, to Noah, in a sense a a second Adam, coming out with a second blessing in Genesis 9 to fill the earth and subdue it. And through this line, God's city begins to rise from the mud. From a flood-cursed earth, now some time past, we come to the selection of this one, Shem. And we see God's city is blessed through the generations of Shem. And we need to grab this and understand this because the biblical text is pointing us down this line, down this channel, through this man, Shem, to the conclusion that God intends and ultimately to the realization of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. A few preliminary thoughts and we'll go through this rather quickly. But God's city blessed through the generations of Shem, the word generations here in verse 10, is a primary marker of distinct units in the book of Genesis. The Hebrew Toledoth continues to repeat through the book, drawing attention to the start of a new conception. So this is why I think again that 
Genesis 11, 1 through 9, leaves this final picture of man's rebellion in the building of the tower as a conclusion before now moving into this narrow focus on Shem. Let's remember there are gaps in the record. Let's remember that there's a careful selection of key individuals, representatives along the way. It's not that every child that was born, that every marriage that took place in this line was godly people. That's not the point. We're going to find, in fact, that there's one in this line who is a pagan. But there are individuals chosen throughout to highlight the lineage that God wants us to follow out of the gate in the book of Genesis to the one who will crush Satan's head, to the Messiah and Deliverer. To some degree then, every genealogy of the Bible is really anchored in the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. Anytime you see a genealogy and you're reading a Bible and maybe you say, oh no, here we go again, remember it's linked to this prophecy. It's linked to the promise that God will send one to crush Satan's head. Which one? How do we know who he is? God aids us here saying, so-and-so was born to so-and-so. This individual fathered this individual. And the lineage is traced down to help us know where to track, where to follow. That being said, let's pick up with verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he, fought, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem li- lived after he fathered Arpachshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. This is the word where we get the word Hebrew. A Hebrew, the Eberites, the Hebrews. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. We won't take the time to look at this, but you can look at it later. Peleg had a brother, Joktan, chapter 5. The genealogy splits here. And it follows Peleg. One in whose time the earth was divided, apparently at the division of the Tower of Babel. Verse 19, and Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and he had other sons and daughters. Verse 20, when Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ru lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and he had other sons and daughters. We notice here a a pretty significant dip in longevity, probably due to atmospheric changes after the flood, increase of genetic mutations, perhaps heightened by the fact that people were segregated and divided and sent into different directions. We don't know all of the reasons, and we can take the text at face value. But let's remember, of course, as we continue to learn to read genealogies, that they travel in a vertical manner, But when they stop and begin to travel in a horizontal 
manner, it is intended to get our attention. When a genealogy is tracking vertically, it's going from generation to generation and probably with gaps included. But when it pans out horizontally, we know we are to pay attention. And we start there with Adam. But remember, Abel is murdered by Cain and Seth replaces Abel. I'm just summarizing here on this slide, but it goes through Enoch and Lamech, who are the two individuals where there is special attention drawn to them in the genealogies to this point. But here we come then to, and then we, then we come to Noah, which we've considered earlier, and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Where Noah's three sons are listed, it is to get our attention to be careful as we're reading the genealogy to know that emphasis is now being drawn on Noah and on one of these sons, and that is, of course, Shem, which we see here again where we've come now today in chapter 11. Shem, we've traveled down through this vertical line and come now to Terah, verse 24, where the genealogy goes horizontal, drawing our attention, saying, so so to speak, in blinking lights, look at this, watch this, here's where you should be tracking. Verse 24, when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Genesis 1 through 11, these first 11 chapters, have been like a fast-moving helicopter. We've been looking down upon the scene and we've been moving quite rapidly through the history of humanity. But at this place, the helicopter slows and begins to descend and will look at a very narrow swath of history, moving very slowly through a very narrow channel, this one family. We have only four generations from here to the end of Genesis. So in this slowing down, this focus, God's redemptive purposes have been displayed to us and now are being narrowed in to this particular consideration. Verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Remember the word generations. We have This is the stoppage indication. We have that at verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Now the author of Moses wants us to stop again. Think on this. Draw your attention here. These are the generations of Terah. We're narrowing in. We're slowing down. Verse 27, He fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran, we find in verse 28, dies in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's kind of a strange note. And strange, in fact, to have a reference here to, to Lot. It's kind of a jarring here, but it's preparing us, of course, for what is to come. Haran's untimely death is mentioned here, and it has effect upon the narrative to follow. But we notice here that they live in Ur of the Chaldeans. There's some debate on the location of where Ur was at this time, but all agree that it is Mesopotamia, where anthropologists even today confirm was the cradle of civilization. Ur was also thoroughly pagan. Here... We are introduced, verse 29, again to Abram. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, 
and Iska. There's a lot going on here, just even in the numerology and the list that takes place. But I think this is important to consider. Sarai and Milcah were the mythological names of the female partner and the daughter of the moon god Sin. That's just English, but it's sure fitting name for us. The moon god Sin. Their names indicate a pagan background. Joshua 24 and verse 2 confirms this, uh, indicating that Terah served other gods. So the family we're looking at here is your common, run-of-the-mill pagan family. They live in Ur, one of the most significant cities on the earth at that time. There, was, there is yet today indications of a developed civilization. And by name, they had identified with false worship, which carried on from Babel. God scattered people there, but they didn't stop building the towers. And there were many of them here in Ur. And this family just picked up from the environment its trust in the gods of this world, the false religion of this world. Now, Nahor here marries his niece. This is a violation of God's will today. But at this stage in history, that was commonplace. In fact, it was usually seen as a a very respectful decision, something to do to to, to marry a deceased brother's uh, daughter would have been seen in that day as, as honorable. So there's nothing unusual about that here. But we're just being introduced to varying individuals who will play into the account. In verse 30, that's very clear because here we have a very strange statement. Sarai was barren, she had no child. And that hits you as like, what on earth does that matter? Why bring that particular point out here? On a human level, it's of course a very sad note. And it indicates no small degree of suffering on the part of Abram and Sarah. But it's obviously foreshadowing and also a glaring oddity in the midst of this genealogy. So what we're to understand here about Abram is that he has no children. This infertile, pagan woman would seem to have nothing to do with God's promise to produce a deliverer through Shem. She would be about the least likely candidate. She doesn't follow the true God. She doesn't have children. She's not able to have children. What does she have to do with the promise of God to produce an offspring? The question we have to ask, we would assume that it's out of place. But the city of God would begin to rise. It would rise from the mud, but not in Ur. Verse 31, we learn here that Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. We're not told why he does this. Why does Terah, the one we do know, worships a false god? Why is he making this journey? Chapter 12 will explain. But this text simply closes out Terah's history with the unusual note that he's left his homeland. This we should grasp. This is a tough decision. It's very difficult and rare to do something like this in that day. Security was found in your clan. 
in your, it was settling in your homeland. That's where you found security. Close relationships were your social security, your armed protection, and your employment. So wandering from home was either an admission that you were an outcast in trouble with the people that you knew, or that you were just extremely reckless and probably up to no good. But Terah makes this journey as he leaves Ur of the Chaldeans and heads toward Canaan. He doesn't make it. He dies halfway there in the city of Haran, which you can see here on the map. So Ur down in your, on the right lower corner, working him their way up along the fertile crescent and stopping then at Haran. At Haran, Terah dies. So God's city is blessed through the generations of Shem, we are taught. And we learn then in chapter 12 next that God's city is blessed through the election of Abram. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, here is God's command to him, the Lord said, and we should probably read that as the Lord had said, which explains why Terah was leaving as the head of his clan at this point. His name is there, but it's really the call to Abram that's at issue here. Verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So from God's perspective, the election and call of Abram marks a decisive fine-tuning of salvation history. We've narrowed all the way down to this one individual. The promised Messiah who would end the curse was now to be identified with Abram's childless lineage. What did Abram do? to gain God's favor in this way, to have God speak to him. What did he do? The text indicates that he did absolutely nothing. This was a matter of sovereign election. Adam was an average moon god worshiper from Ur, a great city of common sinners. The grace alone moved God to choose Abram. Now this choice was not entirely arbitrary, of course. Abram was of the lineage of Shem. But there was nothing in Abram to merit this calling. From Abram's side of the matter, this was no easy call. God does not tell Abram where the journey will take him. Hebrews 11.8 confirms that. I'll show you a land. You don't know where you're going. He promises at this point only to show him the land, but he must follow God's call. And Abram, to follow God's call, has to leave. And it had a hit like hammer blows. What does he have to leave? He's got to leave his country, his kindred, his father's house, and his land. I want you to leave it all. I will show you where to go, but I want you to turn your back and to leave it all. Every societal prop on which Abram had built his life was to be willfully abandoned in obedience to God. Are you a Christian? Are you a genuine, born-again believer in Jesus Christ? If you are, Abram, is your hero. This man's act has everything to do with you. 
In fact, his very response to God in this situation where all the props are kicked out, where God's word leads him to do what is absolute insanity in everyone else's mind, this man is a father of faith. And for genuine believers in Jesus Christ, we say of this man and of this call, we get it. Will Abram follow the spirit of man's city? Will he follow the spirit of God's city? Like Cain, will he seek his refuge in a city, trusting in himself? No thanks God, I'm pretty good right here. Lord, like Lamech, will he assert his independence from God? I don't need you. I take care of my own life, Genesis 4. Will Abram, like Babel's builders, refuse to travel? I'm staying right here. Or will Abram, on the other hand, heed the voice of God and obey in utter dependence upon the Lord, loving God to the contempt of self and everything that seemed to make sense? What will he do? This isn't just an account about one guy out there. This is an account about us. This is an account about how God works. This is an account about how he calls people in faith by his sovereign grace. And there's a response that makes no sense to the city of man. Now there's only one sane option. It's only ever one sane option when God speaks, and that's to heed what He says, to do what He says. But sin never permits us to think rationally. This is the irrationality of sin in itself. We think we're thinking rationally when we choose sinful patterns, when we choose to disregard God's call, when we say His call is too hard. We think we're thinking very rationally. We're thinking very irrationally. Sin is never ever rational there's only one option for him here but will he make it now god adds to this strange call also his promise he's not just throwing abram out there but he's saying i verse 2 will make you a great nation and i will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How does man's city seek blessing? How do they seek the vitality, the beauty, the productivity of life? How do they seek abounding life? It's by power, it's by fame, it's by sensual pleasure, it's by human ingenuity. That's what they go after. Whatever glorifies and magnifies man, that's how you get life abounding. But for Abram, God is the source of blessing. And God has chosen to funnel the blessing of life through Abram to the entire planet. God, the giver of life, will give abundant life through this man. By the way, the man that has no children and has a wife who cannot bear children. Through that man will come this blessing through the name. Oppose Abram and you oppose God. Bless Abram 
That is, wish upon His people God's gifts of productivity and beauty and vitality, and that same blessing will fall on you. Why? Because God has chosen to love Abram and to work His saving grace through Abram's family, and everyone on earth needs to decide about Abram. We have to think carefully about whether or not God did choose this man uniquely and how that influences our lives. Abram's heart was strangely warmed, strangely drawn to this call of God, his saving grace to be worked out through Abram's family. And Abram's heart, as it is filled with this desire to obey, acts upon that desire. And we ask, what did he specifically obey? What did Abram specifically trust in? It wasn't the travel brochure that God put on his desk to look at the beauty of Galilee. I just saw one of those recently. You can actually buy a place on, the lake, on Lake Galilee in Israel, and it's a beautiful place. That, is that what he's responding? Well, I'd like to live there. That's a, re- that's a really nice place. That beats what I'm living in now. That, I'll, I'll, I see that. I want to go there. Is that what he's responding to? Or... More seriously, is he responding to a miraculous sign? That God miraculously gets his attention and he's saying, I don't have any choice but to believe this God? What's he responding to? This is so significant because God channels his saving purposes through this man. He's responding to what? He's responding to the voice of God. He's responding to God's word. And that's it. There's no pictures, there's no miracles, there's nothing crazy going on here. God is just saying, I want you to go there. I'll show you where. Trust me, leave everything. And I want to work my saving purpose through you. And while we know everything hinges on God and God alone, everything in some sense hinges on Abram taking the call following it and leaving all and going in obedience where God wants to use him. Waltke puts it this way, God does not appear to be seen, but he speaks to be heard. He doesn't appear in order to be seen by Abram here, but he speaks in order to be heard. And Abram indeed obediently journeys to Canaan beginning at verse 4 with this amazing prophecy echoing in his heart Verse 4, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, been introduced to them, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan, everything to do what God has called him to do. Abram leaves with those willing to join him, And here, as well as Genesis 14.14, we find that Abram leaves no storage locker in Ur. He's not coming back. He takes everything with him. Traveling the Fertile Crescent, the family stops at Haran. As we've noted, Terah dies, and then they make the thousand-mile journey on to Canaan. Verse 5, at the end, when they came to the land of Canaan, we now read of of, of Abram traversing this land. They came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
interesting connections here. Shechem, why Shechem? What's the importance? It's positioned at the very center of the land. This is the place where eventually the Israelite nation will come and will stand here at Shechem. And half of the tribes will stand on the hill, Mount Ebal. And others will stand, the other half will stand on the hill, Mount Gerizim. And in antiphonal speaking, they will speak the blessings and the curses of the law, echoing in that valley from those two hills, right here at Shechem. But here Abram marks the place. And here at this place, it's marked by something else, and that's the Oak of Morah which is almost certainly a pagan site. The pagans believing that the trees reached up into the sky and were closer to the gods and were therefore a place where we could kind of channel our prayers and our sacrifices up toward the heavens. There's probably some indication here of temptation on Abram's part. Will he just fall into the pattern and fall into the worship of the land? It's setting us up this reference to this oak or terebinth tree, it's setting us up for verse 7. What happens? Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Two major emphases of the rest of this book, and really of the whole Bible. To your offspring and to this land. So how does Abram respond, not by worshiping the pagan gods at the Oak of Morah, but, verse 7, he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, at the center of the land, God promised to show Abram. God appears to Abram and promises that his offspring will inherit this land. In humble thanksgiving, Abram builds an altar at which he worships the Lord. So the city of Babel... Not long past in our consideration here, in Cain-like rebellion against God, builds a tower to approach God on their terms and for their glory. What's Abram doing? Here he is in this promised land and he's building not a tower to his own name and man-made worship. He's building an altar. That brings us right back to Abel. Here is one who in faith in worship of the true God, builds an altar in sacrifice to the Lord, in faithful worship. This one has been blessed by God. In this one there is spiritual vitality as he worships the Lord and builds this altar for the glory of God. The journeying continues, verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and he pitched the tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Bethel, the house of God. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Again, he builds an altar. And this place also will become a very significant place in Israel's journeys. A place where there is a unique meeting with God. And here, this patriarch marks the spot with yet another altar. So where the offspring of the serpent is marking the earth with their ziggurats and their walled cities, Abram marks the promised land with altars of worship to the true God. Calling on, notice it, how does he call? He calls on the name of the Lord. There's that motif of the name again. 
11.4, the city of man sought a name for themselves. Abram, the man of faith, calls on the name of the Lord. Abram's name would be blessed because he trusted that God's name was a source of ultimate blessing. Life was not in towers and cities, in human power and ingenuity. It wasn't in sensual conquest, Genesis 6. Life, abundant life, let's take it home today, is in God. Abundant life is in God and God alone. It's in that relationship with Him that we find this abundant life. And fittingly, Abram worships the Lord with thanksgiving here, calling on the name There's also then obviously a prayer motif here. Calling on the name, we emphasize the word calling as well. It draws us back to chapter 4 and verse 26 and God's people gathering together to call upon the name of the Lord to seek Him in united prayer as His people. Abram sets that, establishes that here as one who prays and seeks His joy in God alone. This is exactly why we're here today. This is what brings us together through this promise to Abram and through this establishment of true worship. We gather as those who have entered into the blessing of Abraham through faith and confidence in Christ. We gather here to pray together as the people of God. We gather here in our prayers uniquely. Our prayers holding us all week and ascending to God throughout the week, but coming here together on the Lord's day. And whenever we gather as God's people to pray together to say, we are these people of faith. This promise to Abram, he's our hero. We look to him. We thank God for him. We see what God has done through him. We identify with him. We get it. Life is not about power broking and getting our way and exalting our name. It's about seeking the name of God together as His people in prayer. Relating to Him and finding in Him our joy. This is what Abram is establishing here in the land that God has promised. The place where there is a marking that says here. Watch this place. In verse 9, Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. That is, he's journeying south. So we see that in the, in the uh, map here at the lower left, into the Negev. And the point being that he's come from the north, and now he's made his way all the way down to the south. So the father of faith, the man of promise, had traversed the land and viewed God's promise. He saw it now. God showed him the land as he promised. And according to verse 8, Abram only pitched a tent in this land. He had to put his faith and his trust in God's promise. In the end, he was only going to purchase a cave here. A a cave with the field connected to it where he would bury his wife and where he would provide for the resting of his own bones in the end. That's it. It was all of faith. It was all a trust and a confidence. Never in his life did he inherit the land, but he trusted the Word of God. He trusted God's promise, and God counted that trust to Abram as righteousness. This was good. This was right. This was pleasing to God to obey Him. How much courage we can take here. I so thank God 
for this text of Scripture, and I would say to you, Genesis 12, these first verses are as important as anything we find in the Bible. Without these verses, everything else really falls apart. It's not the right way to even look at it. It's impossible. It's just a hypothetical of how we could live without Genesis 12. But everything is channeled through this man of faith and God's electing grace in his life. And we need to recognize the significance of it. But in seeing the significance of it, what hope is here? Christianity is no afterthought. It's no late-breaking development. It's not a fanciful, imaginative invention of the disciples. Salvation in the name of Jesus Christ is a work of God slowly, painstakingly worked out through millennia of time. In very specific ways, through the Word of the Lord and through providential means, God continues to point to this family, this line. Our hope is in the people of Shem. And it's our hope we find here. This blessing will pass to all peoples, to all nations. It's not limited then to the people of Shem, but it passes on to everyone who will believe. Salvation in the name of Jesus Christ is a work of God. This thin line of people, this tiny spit of land, this promise of God passed down from generation to generation over 2,000 years. Is this caught in the New Testament? Is this just something we just kind of impose back upon it? No, we find that we're reading it properly when we see it this way. What is the blessing? It is ultimately Christ crucified and risen. It is the Messiah. And Paul, the apostle, sees this in Galatians 3. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham. When did he do that? When he said, In you shall all the nations be blessed. God doesn't work out all the details here with Abram. But he does preach the gospel to him when he says it will be through you, through your offspring, your offspring, that I will work my saving purposes and bless all nations. So then those who are of faith, those who have the faith of Abraham, those who put their trust in the Word of God, whatever that Word is to us at whatever time in salvation history, those who put their trust in the Word of God are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And I just don't get tired of thinking about this. That we come in here on the Lord's Day as representatives from the nations who have been won by this Savior. Through this promise, we gather to sing songs of redemption from among the nations that He is so blessed. That should never, ever get old. And if you've not entered in and become a person of faith, along with the man of faith, Abraham, you've got to come through this narrow channel. Now your focus is not on Abraham himself. 
The focus is on the final offspring that comes in the last genealogy of the Bible, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ who takes on our sin, dying in the sinner's place to pay the penalty of sin and rising from the dead to fulfill Genesis 3.15 and to crush Satan's head. It's in that message that we must trust. But the beauty is, and the point here, is this is no afterthought. God has been working through millennia, through generation after generation after generation of prophecy to point us precisely to this one who will bear the weight of sin and crush Satan's head. And I say to you, if you've not embraced this faith and this truth, I say to you something, I recognize how horribly countercultural it is. Or maybe I should put it, it's gloriously countercultural. But you have to come through this narrow channel. There is no salvation outside of what God has done through Abraham. Leading through his lineage ultimately to Jesus crucified and risen. There is no other path. And every other religious attempt to pursue the gods is man-made at its core. It is false religion. It is man-city speaking for man. Whatever it is, God has elected and chosen to work just through this channel. And we must bring ourselves to it. But again, the beauty, it's not an afterthought. It's carefully defined for us. I think then secondly, as we reflect on this passage, it really draws us to ask the question, what do I believe makes life worth living What is the blessed life? What is life abounding? What makes life worth living? What gives it vibrancy? What gives it beauty? What gives it productivity? Man city, it is the access to power, to control, to fame, to wealth, to security, to sensual pleasure, to technological advances that make life so fun, so easy more comfortable, more enjoyable. They assure us greater health and more longevity. These are the things that really make life abundant and rich. I even heard a pastor preaching here this week. The abundant life was in the millions that God will give you, hopefully. That was his message. Get your life ready to receive the millions that God will give you if you're faithful. In, a, in Christ's name, that's a message of man's city that your blessing and your security is in wealth. It's not God's message. Abram is the father of a community of people who think in a very different way. We do not believe that the many physical benefits produced by man's city are all innately evil. But we realize that God's blessing is found in His name, not our name. In His promises, not our self-promoting pursuits. 
The glory is in the name of God. The joy is in the name of God. Life abounding is in God's grace to His people. And so for us, prayer is far more important than making money. Prayer is far more important than getting our way. Prayer is far more important than the pleasures of this earth or living a long life in health and wealth. Relating to God is a bounding life. I wonder, is there anything that you prize that conflicts with the spirit of God's people and God's city? Is there anything you would not give up in this life should God call you to do so? We're just playing games here and listening to stories and moving on if we don't catch this from Abram. God asked Abram to give it all up, and I've got to ask myself, if he asked me to do the same, would I do it? It's a simple question, but you've got, we've got to face it here. Is there anything you'd say, not that, not him, not her, not them, not it, not that? If so, that thing, that person, that possession, that pleasure, that job, that activity is an idol. It's really no different than sin, the moon god. You're bowing down to it and saying, it has ultimate life-giving value. I would not get rid of it should God ask me to do so. We can't hold anything tightly like that without becoming idolaters. Please think clearly. That idol is not actually blessing your life. It's cursing it. It may be a possession. It may be a pleasure. It may be renown, a relationship, something like this. It's cursing you. It is slowly sucking dry the vitality, the beauty, the productivity of your life because it's not meant to produce life. And the only sane response today is to repent. And maybe in zealous resistance to idolatries, you find yourself on the other side of it, and there's a yearning here that says, I don't hold the things of this life tightly. I don't want any idols. And I'd even be encouraged if God would say to me, leave it all and walk away and trust me. I wish God would call me on such a radical faith venture. Well, let me say to you, He has. God may never call you to leave your home and everything that you own and know in order to follow Him that you have to take such a risky venture or you will walk in disobedience. That may be unlikely for us, statistically speaking. But what God does call every one of us to do is to trust Him alone. To love Him above everything else. And therefore to be willing to take all of life's relationships and possessions and goals and dreams and put them in a pile next to God and say, I will take God. He doesn't always ask us to release all of that literally and physically. He does ask us to release it all in faith to whatever He calls us to do. And what God does call us to do is just this. Take up your cross and follow me. That is a radical rejection of all of the props of life to follow Christ 
day by day. That is his call to you. It doesn't look just like Abram's call, but at its heart, it's the very same thing. It is to say to my heart and soul and every dream and goal and possession and thing and relationship, God, it's yours. I want you. And I'll trust nothing but you. Take up your cross and follow me. The call of Jesus Christ in our lives is nothing less than a call to a full break from the course of this age. And as Abram leaves Ur, he has to trust God. We're not going to go very far into the text till we find that Sarai's infertility becomes another issue where he's got to trust God. He makes some stumbling attempts that way, but he comes to the end to say, I've got to trust God. I can't, I, she can't have children. But I've got to just trust what God has said. And then he comes ultimately to Genesis 22, and that child having been born, perhaps miraculously, God says, take that child and give him to me. Sacrifice his life. And Abram again has to come to trust God. A lot of it doesn't make sense. And in your life and in mine, a lot of it doesn't make sense. We come to the trials, the difficulties of life. We come to the course that God has laid out for us and we look at it and say, I don't want that course. I really don't want to go there. I don't want this pain. I don't want this situation. I don't like the way this is working out. I don't like what you've called me to do. But like the man of faith, we need to say there's a different way of looking at this, and that is to take all that this world holds dear as its security and to say, I give it to you, and I trust your word. You will never leave me or forsake me. You will work all together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. That is your promise to me. And though it doesn't make sense and I don't get it, and though my heart is aching with pain as I deal with some of these problems and trials, I trust you. And in the suffering, I trust my hope and my confidence to you alone. Not to things working out for my name's sake, but for yours. And in that way, we walk with Abram, journeying to a city that is not of this world. Father, help us. We desperately need your help, your aid, your correction your instruction, your guidance to be people of faith who hold tenaciously only to your revealed word and to who you are. Fill us with abundant life. May life be abounding in us as it flows through you to us. May we walk in faith, the faith of Abram, and may we see in him a kindred spirit. And I pray that others would be able to detect as well in our lives, a desire to be faithful to you, to trust your purposes for us even when they don't make sense. Thank you that he obeyed. And we thank you for all that you worked through his faith and through 
this one narrow channel to bring us to salvation as the nations so that we may gather here to pray and to sing for the glory of your name. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.